again, want to welcome everybody here today. Um, our usual, for those of you who are visiting here, our usual uh, preacher, Walter Lane, is still in England at the World Track and Field Championships. Um, my name's Craig Hayes. I'm one of the shepherds here. And uh, for those of you who do know Walter, I would like to point out that both Kyle Wittenberg last week and myself this week are wearing scriptural ties. <laughs> so just, just saying. Okay. want to talk about a couple of things today, but I want to talk about when you listen to sermons, when you listen to lessons, when you read scriptures, do you ever get an emotional feel from certain topics? If we're going to talk about worship, what sort of emotions do that convey with you? If we talk about faith, if we talk about heaven, if we talk about grace, and of course, if we talk about money, suddenly we get a different dynamic. Different emotions come to the surface, to the surface when we talk about money and financial giving. We get emotions like guilt, frustrations. Are they really going to talk about this? Sometimes we even get anger. So the question I want to start with today is, why does the discussion of financial giving often cause us such a negative response? Uh, The shepherds asked me to speak specifically on this topic today. And money's important to us. And many of the reasons are good. Of course, there are negative reasons because there are things like status, where we want to have a certain kind of house or a certain kind of car or a certain kind of clothes. I understand for some people that are used to impress people. You know, the old Robert Quillen quote that's been used by 3 million people is, using money you haven't earned to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like. And so there's obviously a negative thing like that that money is used for a status. But money is used for essentials, things that we desperately need. We need to have lodging. We need to have food. We need to have financial security for the future. These are all valid, wonderful things. And in fact, beyond that, when you read through the books of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, you see time and time again that God wants us to have money also so that we can enjoy life. That's not an unbiblical concept. God truly does want us to have good things, to have pleasures for ourselves. I mean, nothing's wrong with us having money. You know, the most misquoted scripture, of course, probably in the whole Bible is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Because obviously the way it gets quoted all the time is money is the root of all evil, right? But what he says is it's the love of money that's the root of all sorts of evil. I mean, it's both more generic and it's not money itself isn't the problem. It's the way we treat it. See, the problem isn't the money itself. The problem is the the faith, the confidence we put in a couple of different things. 
We either put faith in the money itself that somehow it will keep us safe, it'll keep us secure, or secondly, we put the faith in ourselves and our ability to produce this wealth. And that is what will keep me safe is because I'm really good at what I do. So what we have is a misplaced faith. First of all, when we have faith in money, the first thing to remember is money itself is not the ultimate blessing. First Timothy, again, chapter 6 and verse 17 and 18. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So he's telling them not to put their hope in wealth. But he's not condemning the wealth because what's the purpose of the wealth that he's mentioning here? To share, to bless others. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 16. And he's, this is Moses speaking about God uh, to the Israelites as they've been through the desert. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who has given you power to make wealth that he might confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as if to this day. So what we've got here is we've got a fact that God sometimes puts us in situations that seem difficult so we can remember where the blessings really come from. That there are times in our life that we are, it is obvious to us that we are incapable of producing the wealth ourselves, of taking care of ourselves. We go through these hardships. Because what happens a lot of times is we tend to separate everything into a sense of God things and world things, of spiritual things, of physical things. We separate the world into two divisions that God never intended for us to create that divide. What God intended for us all along was to understand is that God is not only the giver of the spiritual blessings that we think of like love and mercy and hope and joy. But God is also the giver of all the physical blessings. God is not, God is a source of all blessings, not just spiritual blessings. He gives us all these things. And we don't, shouldn't limit ourselves to thinking of God as being just some ethereal thing that affects this kind of part of our life that's hard to see, hard to grasp. God's down in the dirt with us. He's down in the details. He does all these things with us. So why does God give us the ability to produce a living or even for some wealth? Let's talk about some of the reasons for having money. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because what I want us to do here today as we talk about money 
is I want you to understand that as we go through these discussions, these discussions we're talking about money oftentimes produces guilt in us. That if we're, when we're done here, what I hope you understand is my goal is not to produce guilt in you. And God's goal is not to produce guilt in you. If there is guilt remaining by the time we get through with this time together, it will be because of one of two reasons. My incredible inadequacy as a teacher and preacher. For those of you who know, I'm incredibly uncomfortable up here. Or secondly, it'll be because of your own deep-seated feelings about it that have nothing to do with what God desires for you to feel. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, this is the poor church, overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Consequently, we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well, this gracious work. But just as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. So he's talking about here the giving of money for others as being a gracious work and of it being an example of the love that we can share with others. Proverbs twenty eight twenty seven. He who gives to the poor will never want. But he who shuts his eye will have many curses. Giving to the poor is a very fundamental part of what we do. Uh, Leonard made reference to that. The work that we do to give to the poor in here. But it's also, there's other things. In Romans 15, Paul talks about... He's writing to the Roman church, and he's going to be coming to the Roman church, the church in Rome, which he's never been to. But he's hoping that they will give him support to help him get to Spain. He's looking for money. So there's support for missionaries, right? It's a good work. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is complaining that he and Barnabas, neither one, are given. They both have to work to support their own ministries. While most others, everybody assumes, are supported by the churches in their ministries. So again, supporting Ministries is a logical or is a biblical answer for what to do with their money. So whether it's taking care of the poor, promoting missions, supporting the local ministries, all these things are biblical reasons for giving. But you guys know that stuff. What I'm trying to get here is not just that these are good ways to spend money, but I mentioned that God gives us all blessings, including the financial resources we have, the abilities we have so that we can earn money for one primary reason. God blesses us financially so that we can bless others. It's that cycle that God creates for us. From God 
to us, to others. And then the cycle continues. And while this is one way we can participate in God's blessing, the sorts of things that God's asking for requires an extra step on our part. Let's reread Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. I want you to keep that phrase in mind as we go through the remainder of this. I, the Lord, do not change. We talk a lot about worrying about what's Old Testament, what's New Testament. But God says he does not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8, here's how. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are accursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you until it overflows, then, then, not till then, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. What's the challenge here? To bring the whole tithe, right? What was the tithe he's talking about? It was 10% of everything, right? And what was the promise to those if they did? Then they would truly see the blessings of God poured out on them. The reason we have a lot of trouble with a lot of these passages is a lot of these passages have been hijacked by what I'll call those who preach the health and wealth gospel. They preach that if you are a good Christian, much like Job's friends kind of thought, you will be wealthy and you will be healthy. And I got news for you. That's not what God's promising. What God's promising you is what we're going to be talking about. But the promise is that if you do what he's asked of you, what he hopes for you, he will give you the ability to bless others. So what does it mean to test God in our giving? What does it mean to test God? First of all, there's two things he brings up here. One is bringing the first fruits. First time we see the mention of first fruits is in Genesis 4-4 with Cain and Abel. And while we don't know exactly why Abel's offering was blessed by God, why it was found acceptable, and why Cain's was not, what we do know is that when we read of the story, that one of the things that tells us about Abel is that he brought the firstlings, it's the cause of his flock. He brought the very first thing in. And when we're talking about the reforms of Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles chapter 31, verse 5, whoops, 2 Chronicles 31, 5, that's why I can't find it. 2 Chronicles 31, 5, 
It says, and as soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of all. They brought in the first fruits of everything that there was. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So why does God want us to give of our first fruits? Why is the first fruits so important? In Philippians 4, verses 17 and 19, let's skip this. Let's go ahead and go down to 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 8. Now, I, now this I say, who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance. You may have an abundance for every good deed. He's not saying that you will have an abundance. He's saying you'll have an abundance for what purpose? Every good deed. Again, I think we've had these concepts hijacked from us. And I'm hoping today this will be the start of taking them back from the people who stole them from us. Why does God want the first fruits? Why is this the type of gift that God wants? First of all, these gifts that he got from Abel, that he got from the people under Hezekiah, they are our best. It's not the scraps left over after we've done everything else, after we've paid every other bill. It's our best. It's the best that we've got. Second of all, it's intentional. We plan for this above all else. And third, it's given before anything or anyone else. It's all about prioritizing where God is in our lives. Just as it involves our time, our love, our money fits into the same mindset. Because where our money is, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also, right? And interestingly, you know, we talked about some of the good things it's used for, like ministry and missions and the poor. And in one of the most common passages we use, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, when we talk about why we take a, a, a weekly contribution... Paul specifically is telling them, take up a weekly contribution. Why? So there won't be any need for me to take up a special contribution. We should already be putting God first in the way we give without being told there's a specific reason to do it. Because we know God is first in our lives and these good works need to occur. Okay. Why make a big deal about the tithe? Because, you know, Malachi 3, 9 and 10, it said, bring the whole tithe. He made a big deal about it. Bring the whole tithe. 
So tithing. Remember the story about the widow's mite? Where she gave that last coin everything she had? It's never about how much money is given. She gave the coin. And you know how Jesus slammed everybody else about their giving? Do you realize that that everybody else was giving 10% of everything they had? The ones that he is slamming. Later on, when Jesus is doing the famous passage where he's doing, he's calling down the woes on the Pharisees, he tells them to start doing these things like justice and mercy while not forgetting the other things like providing the tithes. And we start going to this, wait a minute, that's, 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 that's Old Testament law, right? God does not change. Let me give you an example. Sermon on the Mount. It is said in the old law, you shall not hate. I tell that you, you should not kill. I tell you, you should not hate. He makes it stricter, right? It says the old law, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, you shall not lust after a woman. He makes it stricter. I say you shall bring the tithe. The new law is, he didn't really mean that we need to give that much. See a logical disconnect with the way we normally approach this? He does not command a specific percentage in the New Testament. I agree with you 100%. It's about where our heart is. So the reasons for the tithe. First of all, quite frankly, I think he picked that amount because it's enough that to us it feels, it can feel like a sacrifice if you haven't done it before. And secondly, it requires faith. Luke 12, 27 through 34. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? And do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves purses which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Because when he got in there, notice in verse 28 he said, O men of little faith. Because really, when it comes down to it, it is really all about faith. Hebrews says that faith is the things that are not seen, the hope of things not yet seen. And down in verse 6 of that same chapter 11, it says, and without faith it is impossible to please God. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ in all generations forever and ever. Amen. Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000. Do we really believe that the same Lord who took five loaves and two fish can't miraculously change 
the funds we receive to allow us to bless others? How can we take this opportunity to bring what God has asked for, to bring our best, to bring our first fruits, so that we can truly bless others? The reason I said I don't want this to be about guilt is this is an incredible opportunity. This is a chance for us to see God working through us individually. This is a chance for us to see God working through this congregation because it's about where we have put our faith. Where have you put your faith? Where have I put my faith? Do I believe that God can do all things? Do I believe that God can do all beyond what I can possibly imagine? And do I believe this still applies today in this world with the physical things that occur in this world? Do I believe that God through this congregation can do incredible things? Because what I would like for you to believe, what I would like for you to desire, what I would like for your hearts to burst forth in doing is is to test God in this and see if he will not pour down blessings beyond what we can imagine so that we can truly bless this community, so that we can bless this nation, so that we can bless this globe. Because I am so tired of budget discussions where we talk about if we're going up 1% or down 1%. We have started thinking small. We have started thinking like the world. We have the Lord on our side. The Lord will bless us. The Lord will give us more. The Lord is there for us. It's not about this stupid health and wealth gospel. It is about what God can do through us if we have the faith to give to God first, to give God our best, to give sacrificially in a way that truly changes the way things work. And I fervently believe that God blesses those who seek to bless others first. So it's time for us to trust God in this and see what we can really do through us and through this congregation. Will you stand? Stand.